Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Adam Dorsey, a clinical psychologist in private practice in San Jose, California, where he specializes in working with Silicon Valley's high-achieving, high-functioning adults. Dr. Dorsey has appeared in the news and in documentaries and gave a popular TED Talk on men and emotions. He is the co-creator of an international resilience program at Facebook's headquarters and continues to provide resilience training to the high-tech realm to DigitalOcean. He speaks to various organizations on a wide range of topics, including men's psychology, the science of happiness, mindfulness, and adult friendships. Adam, it's good to see you again. Good to see you too, my friend. Yeah, welcome back. And uh, we did a, an interview with you a few months ago, which was really excellent and has been really popular. And boy, have things uh, changed <laughs> since then. You're not kidding. Yeah. So you're in San Jose and I'm in Honolulu. We're doing this through a video conference and just want to apologize in advance if the sound quality isn't great. It seems like the connections haven't been, haven't been so good, but we'll do our best here uh, to have this conversation. We'll make up for it in the human connection. I watched a video clip that you recorded a few days ago. It was just some of your thoughts about this coronavirus and what's going on. And I think it had to do just some thoughts about anxieties around that. And they were very helpful, compassionate words that you gave in the video. I really appreciated that. And I was thinking that it might be nice to talk a little bit more about this subject. And hopefully we can discuss this in a way that will be helpful for people who are dealing with this situation. Sure. Thanks for your kind words. It was birthed due to my own anxiety. I not only treat anxiety, as I mentioned on the uh, video, but I also suffer from it. And I have to come up with really healthy coping strategies, many of which I can pass on to the people I see. And I thought it was a perfect time to share some of those ideas that I had around dealing with my own anxiety around the coronavirus, how I was intending to deal with it. And it was rather extemporaneous. It just kind of happened. It was something that I hoped would be helpful and it appears to be resonating with a lot of people, which pleases me greatly. Yeah, I think that's one thing about being a therapist, sometimes that's really helpful is to show the human side that we're just people. We don't Definitely. have any magic formula for being above everybody else emotionally and psychologically. And that human aspect of it is what helps us connect with people who are experiencing some of the same kinds of fears and anxieties and things in life that we do. I love Irvin Yalom's idea of us all being just fellow travelers. And instead of looking at a psychologist or a psychiatrist as a high authority, who's somehow above the basic human experiences, they're just fellow travelers. And Irvin Allen is, for those of you who know him, or don't know him, I should say, is retired Stanford professor and one of the most important figures in psychology today. Right. And he wrote a book called Existential Psychotherapy, which is a classic text that a lot of psychologists like to read because it really talks a lot about existential fears and existential angst that people experience, which is a big part of what we're talking about today, I think. You bet. You've been seeing patients throughout this coronavirus crisis, yeah? Yes, I do it exclusively via video therapy. And I found that it works very well, especially because I have already established rapport with those patients. And I always ask at the end of the session, hey, how did it feel to see me through this instead of face to face? And for the most part, it's been working very well. They've all indicated that they would prefer to see me face to face, but that this has been a very good close second best, especially considering the situation. I've had the same kind of experience. So I've, I've switched mostly to telehealth for the time being. And I think everybody appreciates to have that, not so much because they don't want to come and see me face to face. We both prefer that, but just not going out and being exposed uh, if they don't need to be for the time being. And it's great that we have a profession that allows us to be able to communicate and help people in this way. It's amazing. And we're so blessed to be living in a time where this platform exists so that we can reach people, especially given how badly they need our services during this time in a way that is helpful. Yeah. 
What are some of the things that you're hearing from patients and what's going on with you since you've been vulnerable and open about your own stuff that are kind of top on the list of what is upsetting people and bothering people about this current situation? What I've been hearing has been a broad spectrum from I'm freaked out, my anxiety has increased tremendously, all the way down to this has been a good time for me to regroup. Mm. I have been the recipient of kind of an imposed sheltering. And during this time, I'm looking at videos from all around the world, seeing that the canals in Venice are clear for the very first time in decades, seeing the air quality in China doing better. And I'm trying to take inventory of my own life and what I want to do with it. And uh, so it's been all across the board, uh, but it has been the topic certainly of the week and it's shown up all week, but from everyone. Right. So a broad range of things that people want to talk about on this subject. And we're going to touch upon a bunch of those things in our interview today. I really think that'll be helpful to discuss. But I want to end with the more positive stuff, the coping stuff, leave it on, on a really good note. So maybe we'll start first with the anxiety and fear related stuff and just talk about what that's like for people, kind of put that on the table. And then we'll talk about the ways of coping that are healthy and helpful for people. Would that work for you? Perfect. Yeah. So regarding fear and anxiety, obviously people have a lot of that in a crisis situation with this coronavirus. You know, one thing that comes up a lot, and it's coming up with my patients, I don't know if this is part of your discussion, but how do people weed through what is sort of real and rational and what is irrational and catastrophic and just sort of make some sense on like how to think about and gain, have some perspective on what is actually going on? What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, well, being human, we have this thing embedded in our thinking system called a negative filter. And what it does is it causes us to look at all of the possible catastrophes, all of the possible downsides to any situation. And it's been very protective to our species over the years. Those who did not fear, did not survive and have a lineage beyond themselves. However, in today's brain, it has really served for the most part, to create fears and catastrophes in our own minds that are above what's actually happening. Mark Twain once famously said, I've survived a thousand catastrophes, most of which never happened. And <laughs> I love yeah. that quote. And one of my other two favorite quotes are, don't believe everything you think and feel. Uh, mm -hmm. Feelings are not facts. Thoughts are not facts. And it's very important to really look at them rationally and to make sure that we're getting our news from really good sources, not over listening or viewing the news, uh, certainly not watching movies that scare us and really stimulate the fear centers of our brain, also known uh, particularly in the amygdala where fear and anger are largely processed. And we can really feed that part of our brain by overwatching the news, watching Outbreak. It's funny, I was watching on Netflix, suggested for you was Outbreak last week. <laughs> and clearly it's trending. Um, not a great idea right now. I think right now what we need is comedy. Uh, <laughs> Humanity at its best, yeah. Sorry. So, ne so Netflix should have had something suggested, not for you, right? For me specifically, definitely not for you. Maybe comedians in cars getting coffee. That's more for me. Anything funny uh, or anything that would show the best of humanity. And the problem with living in our fear centers, where we spend a lot of time, is it overrides our ability to think rationally. It kind of acts as what's called an amygdala hijack of the higher cortex, and we don't have access to our ability to think clearly and plan, let alone love or be kind, which are mm -hmm. higher cortical functions. We really need to, right now, we need to purposefully, intentionally choose love and choose kindness over fear and anger. Mm -hmm. Fear and anger are very easy to go to, and it's very easy to engage people there. So the amygdala and, kind of kicks in this fear, anxiety, anger, emotional response. And when that is, um, when that's working, it wipes out the other kinds of thoughts and feelings that are the kinder and better ones for ourselves. Totally. And one thing we can do while we're at home is even make preparations for when I get anxious, here's what I need to do. It could yeah. be remind myself of a song or a particular image 
or just noticing that I'm anxious now and this will pass mm -hmm. mindful around the anxiety itself. But um, it's good to plan for the anxiety because the anxiety pops up like an ugly pop-up ad on your computer screen. And sometimes it's, it can be a hard little bugger to uh, wrestle with in real time. So getting back a little bit, um, I just want to get this one out of the way because I think it's important this whole idea of media, because the media is just, can be an inundation of information, right? And so true. it's it, everything from movies and TV series to social media, to just what we're seeing on the news. And I don't know how you feel about this, Adam, but I sort of feel like a lot of the news really should be kept to a minimum. I mean, you think about the news corporations, the news agencies, they wanna keep people engaged. And the way that they keep people engaged is by engaging that amygdala, right? They want to put these news stories out there that keep people wanting to read. And the more they read, the more anxiety and fear they feel, the more engaged they'll be in with the media. And so maybe that's not the best thing for people to be constantly engaged with following the news and watching the media in that way. Absolutely. It's so good for their bottom line to keep people attached to the news. And they are also able to say very captivating messages like, stay tuned or else something yeah. bad might happen. You might, you might miss out on something very important. FOMO is real, especially now and becomes all the more inflamed and it can become addicting. It's particularly dangerous when we are glued to our screens in bed because the bed should only be used for two things. Right. And that is basically <laughs> sleeping and sex yeah. and not reading about horrors because eventually you begin to associate your bed as a stimulus for stress rather than a stimulus for relaxation. We need that too. But yes, I wish the media had some concept of how much fear and anxiety they're able to promote almost like a wildfire. And of course, they're listening to their bottom line. So right. our responsibility to decide and take responsibility and not be victims to it and say, I will limit myself to this much media per day. And I'm telling my patients, I don't know if, if this is what you're doing, but I'm, I'm just sort of saying like, look, if you want information about this coronavirus, go to the CDC website. You know, they're trying to be objective about the news as it, as it relates to what people need to know and what's important to them and check in with that from time to time to get information that's pertinent, you know, rather than, gosh, I don't want to minimize anybody who's personally suffered a tragedy because of the coronavirus. It's not healthy for people to be in that mindset constantly. So checking in with information from the CDC uh, is a good way to get information that people need to know about what's going on. I love what you said. That's so that's such wise advice, and I do the same with my people. I imagine that as you're viewing the news and finding out about the person who died, the first thought you think is, "Oh my gosh!" And that could happen to me. And already you're imagining yeah. your death. Right. This is not helpful. What is helpful is looking at what do I have control over in my life right now. One of the things is watching this. Yeah. Maybe this is good for me. Does it help or does it hurt? Does it help or does it harm? And in, it's a very binary question. Does it help or does it harm? Ask yourself this and do a sorting. Don't watch it. Watch something else yeah. and figure out a plan to stay healthy and sane until this passes. Governor Newsom was speaking to California in a way that I thought was really brilliant. He was holding COVID-19 as a point in time rather than a total game changer for life as we've known it. A lot of people are future tripping and catastrophizing and deciding that life as we know it has stopped. Yeah. And the way Governor Newsom held it, and I think it was the most psychologically healthy because we don't have any evidence at present that life will be forever changed afterwards from a macro perspective, it is a point in time. I'm holding that in my mind right now in that way. I'm hoping that is the case and I have no evidence to the contrary. And that's the only way I can hold it. Uh, the 12 step mantra of grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change 
the strength to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. I mean, that is so wise. And whether or not you're in 12-step program, that is, that is what we need to be asking ourselves. How can we have the serenity to accept what we can't change and the strength to attend to the things we can change? And how can we, over time, accumulate the wisdom to know the difference between these two things? I think it's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about like in my life and you and I are about the same age, so we probably have similar memories of our shared history here. Uh, I recall 9-11. That was a major event. Terrible. Terrible. And I was also remembering the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. Oh, I mean, it was really awful. And I think you and I were probably in high school when that was um, starting up. And both of those situations were really, really awful in so many different ways. And of course, uh, the world did change after those two, but the world didn't end. It adapted to uh, new realities of things that people needed to be aware of, and they learned how to adapt and continue living and having life and society continued after that. And so I wonder maybe if that's an, those are other examples of points in time where there was a crisis that was really, really awful when it happened, but the world figured out how to adapt and move on. I think that's great. I, I think that's true. Darwin talks about the idea of it's not the smartest and it's not the fittest who survive. It's the ones who can adapt. Yeah. And we've shown great resilience as a macro society and that we have been able to adapt. And I am an optimist. I believe we will adapt when I'm not sitting in fear. And of course, I can, I can go there very easily. Yeah. I hate being there. It's a, it's a bad place. And I'm choosing very intentionally to spend most of my day in a place of optimism and in a place of just taking it one day at a time, as cliche as that sound, as simple as that sounds. I believe that taking it one day at a time is simple, but not easy. And we just have to just do it in that way and not try to stuff an entire pizza down our throat, but rather take it one slice and one bite at a time and attend to it without perpetual overwhelm. I agree. And I want to say more about that as we go through this. I do want to get back, though, to the media a little bit, just because I know that this is coming up for people. And there's some other aspects of that I'd like to just touch upon for the purpose of our our interview today. Another one is is, uh, social media. And one thing I've, at least I've experienced with my patients is that it's so easy to get a lot of misinformation through social media because anybody can post anything they want about anything, right? Anybody can post anything they want about anything and even come off sounding like an authority. And we're still circulating throughout social media with something allegedly written by uh, Stanford That was not written by Stanford at all. It was a hoax. You can find it on Snopes or on various other websites saying, don't listen to this. But unfortunately, people are listening to it. So it's very dangerous. So you really have to go directly to the source. You can't just get it from your so-called well-intentioned family member who's sending this off and sharing it. And if you get bogus information, quickly dispel it. Let the people know in a kind and gentle way, please don't promote misinformation because misinformation too spreads like wildfire. Adam, like for example, somebody in Ohio witnesses somebody getting into a fight with somebody at Walmart and then posts on social media that riots are breaking out in Walmart, that uh, riots are happening and people are shooting each other because it's the end of the world. That's the kind of thing that we hear in social media, right? And I think those, that, are, those are kinds of things that we need to be very careful about believing. If it leads, I'm sorry, if it bleeds, it leads, is what they say. And mm-hmm. that's for journalism and social media. So when we see this, we think, oh my gosh, the world has gone to hell in a handbasket because somebody got into a fight somewhere in the Midwest at a Walmart and it's going to generalize to every Walmart everywhere. That's not necessarily the case. And it's very dangerous when we start engaging in this kind of herd mentality, it, yeah. it does not engage our best brains. I want to say, uh, talk a little bit too about what's going on with the social distancing, which is what they're calling it now, right? Yeah. And obviously, lots of things have closed down. Doors are closed. Airlines are closing down. States, countries are shutting their doors. Like there's been an unprecedented shutdown 
therapists are not seeing patients in person. They're doing it by telehealth. So there's been a lot of changes. And I think one fear that I hear people coming up with is if this, these practices of social distancing are occurring, it must mean that it's an apocalypse. Right. That's also an area where we need to keep some perspective here, right? Because I see it as social distancing as a means of stopping the spread of this virus to protect the most vulnerable people uh, who could who could catch it, rather than everybody needs to avoid everybody because everybody's going to die if they catch the virus, which I think is an easy thing for people to jump to that kind of conclusion. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think you're spot on. People are generalizing and catastrophizing. The answer is we just don't know. But going to the worst possible outcome is not helpful. We think on some level that it will serve to prevent or prepare us, but it actually doesn't. It actually inhibits our ability to think well. Mm -hmm. And I too, Sharon, the idea of social distancing is here to reduce the spread of the virus. We've seen in countries where this is being done that the proliferation of the virus is greatly reduced. In my opinion, I mean, what I understand anyway is that we want to reduce the spread of the virus because the virus can be very deadly for vulnerable people, people with vulnerable immune systems who have not been able to get an immunization like they would for the flu, like say elderly people in nursing homes or people who would be susceptible to have a severe illness. Normally during the flu season, they can get vaccinations, but there isn't a vaccination for the coronavirus. So those people are particularly vulnerable and we want to protect them by trying to stop the spread of this, as opposed to kind of the idea of like, this needs to be stopped because anybody who gets it has a high chance of dying. That's just not the case. The way I'm holding the idea of social distancing in my mind is similar to giving blood at a blood center that needs to collect blood. We're doing this to protect others and possibly ourselves to reduce the mortality rate and that it's not a sign of end of times. It's really to protect our fellow humans. Right. Yeah. And what I'm telling my mostly healthy patients is, hey, you're distancing yourself to help stop spread of the virus so that you're protecting somebody else who might be a lot more vulnerable to this, uh, rather than you're separating yourself from your friend because the two of you might kill each other if you infect each other. I guess that's sort of like, I think it just helps a little bit more if you see the social distancing as a means of protecting other people who are vulnerable rather than protecting this um, apocalyptic epidemic. Yeah, I love the way you're holding it. It's describing the greater good and what we're doing rather than what we're giving up. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on with people. I know there's a lot of like this hunkering down, hoarding mentality. People feel afraid, so they need to hoard stuff. You've heard about this toilet paper, which sure. not not to get too personal, but having lived in Nepal, toilet paper is not something I care a lot about. Uh, you make do with what you got, and, uh, and that is um, a cool way to go. But I understand the need for toilet paper. But what do you think is going on psychologically for people when they feel the need to hoard stuff, grab onto stuff, be afraid of running out of food. Do you see this as sort of like a way of people trying to gain some control over a situation that they might not feel like they have a lot of control over as a, as a psychological mechanism? Exactly. I couldn't have said it better. I've been seeing all types of energy placed on trying to have control over this thing that we have no control over. Somebody was telling me that she was furiously wiping down the counters at her home where she, only she and her husband live. Yeah. Just so she could feel a sense of control. She realized that it was a completely irrational act, but she felt compelled to wipe down her counters for a very long period of time, almost mm -hmm. like Lady Macbeth washing her hands. Um, and now, of course, we're washing our hands more than we ever have. We also tend to think in terms of scarcity, and that's yeah. also been passed down through our negative filter. Our species has lived through famines, and that's been what's been passed down is a fear of any, it's wired into our nervous system, a fear of scarcity. So that's what happens there. And we tend to not think about our neighbor as much as we should. We tend to think more in anger and fear rather than kindness and in love. And that's why I'm really trying to get people to think more about kindness and in love yeah. so that we can really use this time as an incubation period to really 
nurture our best selves so yeah. that when we, on the other end, God willing that when we're on the other end, we can say, I like the way I behaved during this crisis. Yeah. So psychologically speaking, humans don't like uncertainty. They feel very uncomfortable not knowing what's in store for them for the future. And especially when there's something uh, like this coronavirus, which is uh, generating anxiety for people. And so trying to feel like you've got control over the little things you have control over is helpful for coping with that. And so that includes hoarding, stocking up, having that scarcity mindset and protecting oneself doing what one feels like they need to in order to feel like they're gaining some control. And uh, yeah, and that's sort of where that, that comes from. So I think it maybe it's helpful for people to understand that you know, there may not be a real scarcity there, but that that behavior is a compensation for fear and anxiety about the unknown and the uncertainty of the future. Right. Meanwhile, I'm looking at the, at the Purell on my desk and it's very, very hard to come by. And I do need it. So there has been some reality to the scarcity. There has been price gouging, as we know, and a whole host of really negative, nefarious behaviors. And what we need to do is ask ourselves, how do I want to understand this from perhaps a larger perspective? And how do I want to be in it? Those are the mm -hmm. only things over which we have control. The meaning we construe and the behaviors we wish to take on. Yeah. So one more thing I'd like to talk about before we get more into these positive coping things, which you keep drifting toward, and that's just you and your personality. And I love that. And that's why I'm having you on as a guest. Right on. Um, I wanted to talk about one more thing though, and that is anger. Yes. Because it's very easy to feel angry, right? Yes. People feel angry. Uh, I, I know there's a lot of blame that's going out and people can be on edge. And I want to bring it up and I want to talk with you about this as a fellow psychologist, I see the anger, and we often talk about anger as being like a secondary emotion, which is projected because of other underlying emotions beneath that. You got it. So we're going through various stages of grief right now, and it is a secondary emotion to sadness and sometimes fear. Yeah. If we look at the stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression and ultimately acceptance and it doesn't necessarily happen in a linear fashion but the second stage according to Kubler-Ross which I think is well put is anger mm -hmm. and so we are collectively going through a grieving process we've lost something many people are not able to graduate with their class many people are having to change their travel plans many people are losing their jobs yeah. many people are scared about how they're going to feed their families so they're angry and so what do we do with anger well in the amygdala we look outside of ourselves on average to try to find the source how can i find something outside of me to explain how angry i am right now and where can i focus my anger and who is to blame mm -hmm. how can i find justice and all types of questions like that that don't actually serve the person at all. I would also take that a step further and to say like, if one is feeling angry, which is obviously a perfectly natural feeling to have and there's nothing wrong with feeling anger, it may be also helpful to really look within oneself and to say, well, what is this? What's really going on with me here, right? Am I, Got it. Am I feeling vulnerable? Am I feeling anxious? Am I feeling scared? Am I feeling sad? Am I feeling ashamed or guilty for these feelings that I'm having? I think it's very helpful for people to try to say, all right, it's okay for me to be angry, but what else is going on for me underneath this? And acknowledge that and respect it. And sometimes that can be hard to do on one's own. Oftentimes you need a really good friend who's mm -hmm. safe to be vulnerable in front of or a good therapist. It, now is a really good time to be in therapy. But yes, if, we're, if you can look beneath the emotion of the anger and attend to the sadness and attend to it in a loving and compassionate way, uh, one of the things that various researchers on shame have found, which is very closely linked to anger, because oftentimes we feel ashamed in the face of like, well, what can I do in the midst of this? I, if I were a better person, if I were Brad Pitt, I would know what to do if I were... Mm -hmm somebody really powerful. So I feel bad about myself. I feel ashamed. And what we need in those moments is compassion, self-compassion, compassion from another, self-compassion or empathy. As Brene Brown has wisely described it, 
if you were to put shame into a petri dish and sprinkle some compassion on it or empathy if that could be done you would actually get rid of the shame and i've got to give you kudos too for your brief youtube video that you made where you allowed yourself to be vulnerable and talk about you're offering these words of compassion for other people because you understood it was stemming from your own anxieties and i think that's a great role model and model for other people about a good way to be. So um, thank you so much for that. Well, I appreciate that. And I realize that we are all in this together. Never before on the planet have we ever been so connected. And this was my attempt to attend to that fact. We are all in this together. Yeah. And how does that help then? You mentioned that in your video. How does knowing that we're all in it together, it's sort of a small world, really, especially, you know, with being able to connect so easily with telecommunications. Why is that helpful for people to realize that, do you think? Sure. We're lonelier than we've ever been before. Uh, Dr. Murti, the former Surgeon General, has a identified loneliness as a public health issue. He notes that it's equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day, that it intensifies and exacerbates conditions like diabetes, and that we have a higher, 50% higher chance of having dementia if we are lonely. We human beings need to feel connected, and in spite of the fact that we are paradoxically so connected via social media, loneliness has gone up. Mm -hmm. And Right now, we need to be reaching out to friends through video chat, ideally. A second best option would be by phone. And a distant third place would be text or email. We really need to hear the human voice, ideally see the human eyes and face. That's how our brains are programmed. Our brains have not changed much in the last 40,000 years, and yet our surroundings have changed so drastically. So we have been conditioned over the past 40,000 years to see human faces and to feel part of a group. So right now, this could be uh, a really good time, a really good opportunity, not an opportunity that we wanted, but it's the opportunity that we have. We could look at this as an opportunity while we're sheltered to reach out to people, to think about who in my life is somebody who I love, or like, maybe somebody I've been in touch with regularly or haven't been in touch with for a very long time, to whom can I reach out and share this experience and feel safe with during this very vulnerable period. You can do a lot of creative things you, while you're you know, reaching out and you can have each of you go, go, to the, go to the fridge and grab a beer or have a cup of coffee or play a board game. You could play music together. You can get really creative or just, yeah. just talk. Yeah. You could even start a virtual book club. So anyway, I'm, I'm spinning out on all the important ways that we can connect. And right now, we will be more lonely than ever before. And remembering that we're all in this together is a good mantra. And doing something about the loneliness and not just stewing in it is essential. Yeah, I agree, Adam. And you talk about gratitude as being important. I think that's probably ties in somewhat to honoring these relationships and friendships that are important and connecting with people. But you mentioned gratitude as being an important focus in a time of crisis and a kind of time of difficulty. And what does that look like? And why is that? I mean, obviously, gratitude seems like a good thing. But why is it important now? What's so funny is gratitude used to be seen as kind of a woo-woo new agey idea. <laughs> and it had no real research behind it. But now we've seen function. MRIs that show various parts of the brain, particularly in the frontal area, that are enhanced by people who regularly practice gratitude. And what gratitude can do is it can actually displace our anxiety mm. and our fear by really tapping into what is good now. For example, during this sheltering period, I'm aware that I have warm water and clean water. That's a big deal. Mm -hmm. I have an internet connection and I'm able to connect with you right now. That's a big deal. Yeah. And what was posed to me on Friday night by my wife, like this doozy of a question, she asked the family, what are you aware of now that you're grateful for, that you weren't grateful for before this crisis? And wow. I was just blown, I was knocked sideways by the question. And I said, being annoyed on a Sunday, doing a bunch of errands. Like, what would I give to be annoyed on a Sunday to just go out and bang out some errands and feel really annoyed while doing yeah, it? Yeah, I'd that's love a to have that great experience. point. Yeah. So I'm hoping that at the end of this, 
instead of being annoyed on the Sunday when I have to bang out those errands and think to myself, ugh, I don't want to bang out these errands, I'll think, I get to bang out these errands. Yeah. I get to actually hand cash to a cashier, smile, shake hands with somebody. Yeah. Things so I think granted for so long. Do you think people should consciously be doing gratitude checks right now? Like how would that look for like a typical person in their life? The only per- people for whom, by the way, this would be contraindicated is if you find yourself doing a gratitude exercise and rolling your eyes. Uh-huh. It has been found that if you are eye rolling in the midst of a gratitude exercise, it's probably not for you. Mm-hmm. Try something else, like even just noticing good, like this is good. Like, mm-hmm. oh, the sun is shining. This is good. I, I heard the sound of a bird this morning. This is good. But gratitude is what ends up happening is we end up priming our brain instead of looking for what's awful or what's scary. We end up priming our brain to look for what is good out there. And our gas tank in life feels fuller. If we don't really notice what's good in life, we constantly go around doing retail therapy, trying to buy things or trying to eat things, trying to fill these emptinesses in ourselves. When in fact, we're way more full if we would just take the time to do an appropriate accounting of what's in there. Yeah, you know, um, I did an interview with um, a friend of mine, Dr. Sarah Sarkis, on the power of the unconscious um, a while back. And we really talked about how, well, really so much of what goes on churning in your mind back there is happening on an unconscious level. You're not aware of it. And one thing that she talks about, which I think you're talking about now, is putting in that effort to bring the unconscious to the conscious, becoming aware of the things around you, to become aware of the thoughts you're having, and try to be more aware of the way that you'd like to be thinking about things. And one of those ways is having more of a focus on gratitude and also having a focus on the things that make you feel good and that are good for you. Like you said, the bird chirping outside. Like, you know, here in Hawaii, we've got awesome birds. Not to belittle the birds in the Bay Area because you've got some great birds there too. But we have birds that can seriously like carry a tune for like 20 to 30 seconds. And they're just in the background. Like you usually don't, you're not aware that they're there. But when you stop and you listen to them, like there's no way that you can feel anything but like uplifted by that. That's such a great call. I I love the exercise of closing your eyes and just listening to the world around you because we miss so much. Yeah. And to your point about the unconscious, my gosh, one of my all-time favorite quotes comes from Jung, until you make the unconscious conscious, or another way of saying it, until you bring the unconscious into your consciousness, it will drive you and you will think it's fate. Yeah. And of course, the fact is we can't bring all of our unconsciousness into consciousness, but we can bring more. And we can also talk to our unconsciousness by engaging in these gratitude exercises because we will begin to enable all types of psychological and physiological interactions that will really cause our body and our mind to hum in a much better way. Right. And that, like you were saying at the very beginning of our talk today, being aware of the thoughts and feelings, because those are all entirely within yourself, right? And if you become aware of them, I'm feeling this way, I'm thinking this way, and you have a conscious awareness of them, you have the ability to attend to them and uh, make a conscious decision how you want to change it around if if that's what you want to do. Or just honor it, but be aware that it's actually there. Aaron, we spend so much time looking out. And it's Mm. funny, this reality can be reflected if you look at the budget of NASA versus the budget of the underseas exploration funds. We have very little um, funds comparatively, I've been told by uh, an oceanographer, Uh uh, compared to what we have to look out there Mm -hmm. for. And what we could find under our oceans could really save a lot more lives, I'm told, and could be very, we know very little about what lies beneath the ocean. Similarly, we as humans seem to tend seem to look out rather than within. Wasn't there a movie about exploring the ocean deeps and the aliens were actually on the bottom of the ocean floor? Yeah, <laughs> and, and it, it was really great until the very end, if I recall. I think it was a James Cameron movie, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, oh, that's an oldie. Oh, the Abyss, was that it? The Abyss, there you go. Yeah, yeah. And in, in anyway, like sort of the idea that, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just playing this idea that looking out, out there for the aliens and all along they're sitting at the bottom. All along they've been sitting under the water. Right. <laughs> singing, singing Under the Sea from uh, 
from Little Mermaid. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, um, Adam, a couple of other things I want to ask you about, and these were things that you had mentioned in your video about coping. And one of them was like uh, feeling like you have control over the controllable things and not focus on the uncontrollable ones. Right. I think it's essential because it takes us out of a victim mindset mm -hmm. when we think that we're just being moved around and maneuvered like a pinball in a pinball machine. That's not a very good way to live. Even when he was in a Nazi concentration camp, Viktor Frankl realized that every, he was a Viennese psychiatrist who had the worst situation ever imaginable on a human being. He lost his family, he lost his job, he lost his home, he lost his identity. And in the midst of this profoundest of profound crises, he was able to realize that he had one last freedom and that was the freedom to choose how he was going to perceive what was going on mm -hmm. and what he was going to aim to do after he got out. He decided that if Viktor Frankl can do it, certainly we can too. Yeah, Man's Search for Meaning, which uh, by the way is an amazing, amazing book. So if anybody's interested in reading something that well, I don't know if it, I guess it could be a downer in some ways because it's, you know, it has to do with the Holocaust, but the message is all about meaning and finding meaning in the most harshest of times, right? Got it. Yeah. So thank you for bringing that up. So for a person in their day-to-day -day routine now, what would be ways in which they could focus on things in a positive way that they have control over that can bring meaning to them? Well, I think a good thing to do is ask yourself, what is challenging and what is meaningful in my life? When we look at something that we love to do that gives us challenge and simultaneously meaning, like for some people it's playing a musical instrument, for some people it's writing, for some people it's scrapbooking, and others still it's connecting with dear friends in mm -hmm. online. Doing those things in all likelihood will increase the likelihood of, of, of this being a meaningful journey. Again, this is not the opportunity that any one of us wanted. There's this great TV show called This Is Us, and there's a scene where the family finds themselves in a cheap, horrible motel on Thanksgiving, snowed in with no food, and the father runs out, is only able to wrangle some hot dogs that he cooks for the family on the heater in the motel room, and is he's able to furnish a VHS copy was taking place in the 80s, even though it's a current TV show. He was able to furnish a VHS of Police Academy 2. Mm -hmm. And the family bonded around this, and it became very meaningful. And every subsequent Thanksgiving, they always watched Police Academy 2. It became a new family tradition. So I guess I'd have to ask, what would you like to grow now into your life, into your family, into yourself? How would you like to use this time so at the end of this time, God willing, you come out healthy and better for having done whatever you've done during this crisis? So there's an opportunity for growth here, actually. There is an opportunity for growth. Yeah. And I think that growth can take a lot of different forms. Uh, one of the forms is actually realizing that there are other ways that one can go about doing things that are as fulfilling, if not more fulfilling than the way they were doing from before. It kind of breaks up the routine and forces people to be able to try something different. And maybe trying something different helps them grow, doing something different it. than how they've done it before. It breaks up the routine. I'm thinking of the way that the Jews attend to the Sabbath. There are these constraints uh, you're not allowed to engage in technology or driving or spending of money, and you're supposed to be hanging out with your family or reflecting uh, uh, by yourself about life, and you're intended to recharge. This is an enforced sabbatical of sorts. From it, we could actually grow something really meaningful and great if the time isn't squandered just on fear alone. That time is usually spent trying to be very mindful and focused on the family and very in tune with what's going on in the moment. Yeah. Got it. Another way too, I wanted to mention about, about the growth is not just in terms of rethinking the way one does things in their life, but also just realizing that one has the psychological and emotional resources to adapt and change. And that in and of itself, I think can be very empowering for people. Sure. And I've seen great examples of that where people have been really tested by this already 
and they're showing they're showing how strong they actually are. I have an acquaintance whose family is overseas right now. He's alone and he's an extrovert and it's very painful. And I'm seeing just how strong he truly is. And quite frankly, my mind is blown. So yeah, we don't know how we'll be tested during this time. And hopefully we'll be able to show up strong and hopefully we won't be tested too hard. That would be ideal. Yeah. And you talk about the opportunity and the importance of focusing on self-care and one's own needs. Why is that important? Huge. Just attending to the basics. I mean, are you hydrating well? Are you getting enough sleep? Are you eating well? Are you getting a little bit of exercise or meditation in on your day or something that is truly rejuvenating? We are often, there's kind of a, a, a cliche term that we're human doings and not human beings. Mm-hmm. And that's problematic. I mean, we have this dash between our birth date and our death date. And were you actually here for the dash between the birth date and the death date? And if you're not taking care of yourself, you're probably not going to be here for most of it. Mm-hmm. The important thing in life is the opportunity to actually be a part of it to be at the important moments of, of life and to be at the not so, so important moments of life. Thich Nhat Hanh, the, uh, the great Buddhist monk, says, when I get a, uh, a sore throat, I'm enlightened because I suddenly realize how good it was not to have that sore throat. Yeah. And there's something, about, there's something about just being present for uh, not having a sore throat or for being able to listen to music that we really love and to really, really take it in I think that kind of gets back to some things that we were talking about earlier. This crisis is going on, whether we like it or not, and we could spend the entire time indulging in the media, indulging in our anxieties and our worries and our fears, just focused on that. Or we could try to shut that up as much as possible and go for a walk, play games with our family, spend the opportunity to learn, soak in a hot bath. I mean, these are things that maybe we don't even get as much time to do typically anyway. And so there's two, there's different ways that we can respond and how we can move forward with this. And the self-care seems like it's probably the better one. Absolutely. And I'm going to get a little geeky here with you. Uh, there's a concept known as the approach versus the avoid mindset. Mm-hmm. The approach mindset says, I'm going to go kick some major ass. I'm going to make thousand dollars on this deal. Mm-hmm. The avoid mindset says, I'm not going, I don't want to lose a thousand dollars on this deal. What we found is that people who keep things in the crosshairs, keep things under their target, really, really go for it and have the approach mindset. They're more likely to reach their goal and they're happier while they're doing it versus the people who are in the avoidance mindset who are just trying not to accumulate losses. They're generally less successful and they're generally way less happy in the pursuit. And to take this to an even geekier level, Adam, I would almost argue, not to scare anybody, I don't want to do that, but we know that there's such a strong mind-body connection that people who are more focused on moving forward, trying to be positive, trying to be proactive, trying to feel empowered are probably going to be healthier in life, not necessarily about this coronavirus, but in life in general. That's just a healthier mind-body approach to have. I want to tell you a funny story based on that. I was 10 years old, and it was the last week of school. I was just finishing up fourth grade, and my mother had made me a really nice lunch. Ordinarily, I'd get this kind of whole wheat, uh, very healthy peanut butter and jelly. Just didn't <laughs> it, and definitely didn't have any that day. I couldn't trade it with anybody. Are you sure but we're not they, from the same mother, Adam? <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Our mothers have the same, same name. Same part of the world, but oh my gosh! This day, on this day, I got a roast beef sandwich on rye, and it was awesome. Well, on my ride home from school, I flipped my bike, cracked my head open, and broke my jaw in three places. I was immediately taken to the hospital, where I proceeded to vomit my lunch. Now, I was in a lot of pain. It was very bloody, and I was scared. And I remember having this conscious thought, I was 10 years old, the thought was I could cry right now. I really felt like crying. Or I could somehow make this funny. And so I just looked up at the nurse and I just said, and that was such a good lunch. (laughs) (laughs) And I decided 
to spend the week in, in the hospital being as goofy as I possibly could. Mm. I didn't know at the time, but I was engaging my uh, parasympathetic nervous system and I was helping myself heal. There must have been some wisdom that was informing this 10-year-old brain that had no life experience. But I learned from that experience that this is probably a better way to rock it. Mm -hmm. Will the outcomes be good every time? No. Will it improve things every time? Maybe not. Does it increase the likelihood of a better outcome? I believe so. Yeah. And I think that sense of humor is really, really important. Uh, we talked about that in a, and again in a recent uh, podcast episode about a sense of humor being a very highly developed defense mechanism. Uh, and it's so helpful as a way of helping navigate and deal with painful and difficult feelings to be able to uh, have a sense of humor. Uh, it just seems to be very healing and helpful for people. Absolutely. And one of the things that I've also found is that engaging in too much gallows humor, too much black, dark humor is not going to be as helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, cynical humor or humor that is actually just cynicism. That's actually not good. Mm -hmm. Being sarcastic with other people during this time in a mean-spirited way. But what will help is watching goofy stuff together. My family and I watched some really funny movies over the, over the weekend and we're sharing laughter. And I don't know who said it, but I love this expression that God can be found in shared laughter. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a beautiful concept, whether you're an atheist or not, there's something beautiful about that concept about God being found in shared laugh, share laughter. There's something so powerful about sharing that as a common denominator. I agree. Adam, I guess it's about time to wrap up. I, I mean, this has been really fun talking with you and we could go on forever here. Hopefully what we've talked about has, is going to be helpful for people and uplifting and help people just sort of navigate this difficult time. Are there any final thoughts that you wanted to share before we wrap up? I think we've covered a lot and I too hope that this has been helpful to the listener. This is going to be an evolving period for all of us. And I'm really grateful to hopefully be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And I think it's going to be incumbent for all of us to think, how can I be part of the solution instead of part of the problem? I agree. Adam, thanks so much for chatting with me today. It's been great to see you. It's an honor, my friend. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, please go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Please be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks Podcast and accompanying blog to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please be sure to follow Mind Tricks on Facebook by following and liking posts by myself, your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.